0: CD 3 Rincewind thought, We can be said? And it dawned on him what the tracery was ahead of him. It was writing on a page, seen from underneath. I'm in the octavo, he said, in certain metaphysical respects. Said one of the voices in offhand tones. It came closer. He could feel the dry rustling right in front of his nose. He ran away. The single red dot glowed in its patch of darkness. Trumon, still wearing the ceremonial robes from his inauguration as head of the order, couldn't rid himself of the feeling that it had grown slightly while he watched. He turned away from the window with a shudder. "'Well?' he said. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, "'It's a star,' said the professor of astrology. I, 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 "'I think.' "'You think?' The astrologer winced. They were standing in Unseen University's observatory, and the tiny ruby pinpoint on the horizon wasn't glaring at him any worse than his new master.' Well, you, you you see, the the point is that we've always believed stars to be uh, pretty much the same as our, our sun. You mean bowls of fire about a mile across? Yes, but, but this one is, 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 well, big. Bigger than the sun? said Trumon. He'd always considered a mile-wide bowl of fire quite impressive, although he disapproved of stars on principle. They made the sky look untidy. Uh, a A lot? "'Bigger,' said the astrologer, slowly. "'Bigger than Great Artuin's head, perhaps?' "'The astrologer looked wretched. "'Bigger than Great Artuin and and the disc together,' he said. "'We've checked,' he added hurriedly. And, "'And we're quite sure.' "'That is big,' agreed Truman. "'The word huge comes to mind. "'Massive.' agreed the astrologer hurriedly. Hmm. Truman paced the broad mosaic floor of the observatory, which was inlaid with the signs of the disc zodiac. There were sixty-four of them, from Weizen, the double-headed kangaroo, to Gahuli, the vase of tulips, a constellation of great religious significance whose meaning, alas, was now lost. He paused on the blue and gold tilework of Mubbo the hyena and turned suddenly. We're going to hit it, he asked. "'I'm afraid so, sir,' said the astrologer. "'Hmm,' Truman walked a few paces forward, stroking his beard thoughtfully. "'He paused on the cusp of Okjok the Salesman and the Celestial Parsnip. "'I'm not an expert in these matters,' he said. "'But I imagine this would not be a good thing.' "Uh, "'No, sir.' "'Very hot, stars,' the astrologer swallowed." "'Yes, sir. We'd be burned up. Eventually. Uh, "'Of course, before that, there would be disk quakes and tidal waves, "'gravitational disruption, and probably the atmosphere would be stripped away. "'Ah. In a word, lack of decent organisation. "'The astrologer hesitated and gave in. "'You could say so, sir. People would panic.' "'Fairly briefly, I'm afraid.' "'Hm,' said Prumon, who was just passing over the Perhaps Gate "'and orbiting smoothly towards the Cow of Heaven. "'He squinted up again at the red gleam on the horizon. "'He appeared to reach a decision.' "'We can't find Rincewind,' he said. "'And if we can't find Rincewind, we can't find the eighth spell of the Octavo. "'But we believe that the Octavo must be read to avert catastrophe. "'Otherwise, why did the Creator leave it behind?' "'Perhaps he was just forgetful,' suggested the astrologer. "'Trumon glared at him. "'The other orders are searching all the lands between here and the hub.' he continued, counting the points on his fingers, because it seems unreasonable that a man can fly into a cloud and not come out. Unless it was stuffed with rocks, said the astrologer, in a wretched and, as it turned out, entirely unsuccessful attempt to lighten the mood. But come down he must somewhere. Where, we ask ourselves. Where, said the astrologer, loyally. "'and immediately a course of action suggests itself to us.' "'Ah,' said the astrologer, running in an attempt to keep up "'as the wizard stalked across the two fat cousins. "'And that course is?' "'The astrologer looked up into two eyes as grey and bland as steel. "'We've stopped looking,' he ventured. "'Precisely. We use the gifts the Creator has given us. "'To wit, we look down, and what is it we see?' "'The astrologer groaned inwardly. He looked down. Um, "'Tiles?' he hazarded. "'Tiles, yes, which together make up the—' "'Trumon looked expectant. Z- uh, Z- "'Zodiac?' ventured the astrologer, a desperate man.' "'Right, and therefore all we need to do is cast Rincewind's precise horoscope, "'and we will know exactly where he is.' "'The astrologer grinned, like a man who, having tap-danced on quicksand, "'feels the press of solid rock under his feet. "'I shall need to know his precise place and, and time of birth,' he said. "'Easily done. I copied them out of the university files before I came up here.' "'The astrologer looked at the notes.' and his forehead wrinkled. He crossed the room and pulled out a wide drawer full of charts. He read the notes again. He picked up a complicated pair of compasses and made some passes across the charts. He picked up a small brass astrolobe and cranked it carefully. He whistled between his teeth. He picked up a piece of chalk and scribbled some numbers on a blackboard. Truman, meanwhile, had been staring out at the new star. He thought, "'The legend in the Pyramid of Sort,' says that whoever says the eight spells together when the disc is in danger will obtain all that he truly desires, and it will be so soon. And he thought, I remember Rincewind. Wasn't he the scruffy boy who always came bottom of the class when we were training? Not a magical bone in his body. Let me get him in front of me and we'll see if we can't get all eight. The astrologer said, oh, "Gosh!" under his breath. Truman spun around. "Well," a fascinating chart," said the astrologer breathlessly. His forehead wrinkled. "A bit strange, really," he said. "How strange! He was born under the small, boring group of faint stars, which, as you know, lies between the flying moose and the knotted string." It is said that even the ancients couldn't find anything interesting to say about the sign, which, yes, yes, get on with it, said Truman irritably. It's the sign uh, traditionally associated with chessboard makers, sellers of onions, manufacturers of plaster images of small religious significance, and people allergic to pewter. Not a wizard sign at all, and at the time of his birth... The shadow of Coris Celesti! I don't want to know all the mechanical details, growled Trumon. Just give me his horoscope. The astrologer, who had been rather enjoying himself, sighed and made a few additional calculations. Uh, very well, he said. It reads as, as follows um, Today is a good time for making new friends. A good deed may have unforeseen consequences. Don't upset any druids. You will soon be going on a very strange journey. Your lucky food is small cucumbers. People pointing knives at you are probably up to no good. P.S. We we, we really mean it about druids. Druids? said Trumon. I wonder... ''Are you all right?'' said Twoflower. Rincewind opened his eyes. The wizard sat up hurriedly and grabbed Twoflower by the shirt. ''I want to leave here,'' he said urgently, ''right now. ''But there's going to be an ancient and traditional ceremony. ''I don't care how ancient. ''I want the feel of honest cobbles under my feet. ''I want the old familiar smell of cesspits. ''I want to go where there's lots of people and fires and roofs and walls ''and friendly things like that. ''I want to go home.'' He found that he had this sudden, desperate longing for the fuming, smoky streets of Ankh Moorpork, which was always at its best in the spring, when the gummy sheen on the turbid waters of the Ankh River had a special iridescence, and the eaves were full of birdsong, or at least birds coughing, rhythmically. A tear sprang to his eyes as he recalled the subtle play of light on the Temple of Small Gods, a noted local landmark and a lump came to his throat when he remembered the fried fish stall on the junction of Midden Street and the street of cunning artificers. He thought of the gherkins they sold there, great green things lurking at the bottom of their jar like drowned whales. They called to Rincewind across the miles, promising to introduce him to the pickled eggs in the next jar. He thought of the cosy livery-stable lofts and warm gratings where he spent his nights. "'Foolishly, he had sometimes jibed at this way of life. "'It seemed incredible now, but he had found it boring. "'Now he had had enough. "'He was going home. "'Pickled gherkins, I hear you calling.' "'He pushed Twoflower aside, "'gathered his tattered robe around him with great dignity, "'set his face towards that area of horizon "'he believed to contain the city of his birth, "'and with intense determination and considerable absent-mindedness "'stepped right off the top of a thirty-foot trilithon.' Some ten minutes later, when a worried and rather contrite Twoflower dug him out of the large snowdrift at the base of the stones, his expression hadn't changed. Twoflower peered at him. Are you all right? he said. How many fingers am I holding up? I want to go home. Okay. No, don't try and talk me out of it, I've had enough. I'd like to say it's been great fun, but I can't, and what? I said, OK, said Twoflower. I'd quite like to see Ankh Moorpork again. I expect they've rebuilt quite a lot of it by now. It should be noted that the last time the two of them had seen the city, it was burning quite fiercely. A fact which had a lot to do with Twoflower introducing the concept of fire insurance to a venial but ignorant populace. But the devastating fires were a regular feature of Moorporkian life, and it had always been cheerfully and meticulously rebuilt, using the traditional local materials of tinder dry wood and thatch. "'waterproofed with tar. "'Oh,' said Rincewind, deflating a bit. "'Oh, right. "'Oh, right, then. Good. "'Perhaps we'd better be off, then.' "'He scrambled up and brushed the snow off himself. "'Only I think we should wait until morning,' added 2 "'Why?' "'Well, because it's freezing cold. "'We don't really know where we are. "'The luggage has gone missing. "'It's getting dark.' "'Rincewind paused.' In the deep canyons of his mind, he thought he heard the distant rustle of ancient paper. He had a horrible feeling that his dreams were going to be very repetitive from now on, and he had much better things to do than be lectured by a bunch of ancient spells who couldn't even agree on how the universe began. A tiny dry voice at the back of his brain said, "'What things?' "'Oh, shut up,' he said. "'I only said it's freezing cold, and—' Two-Flower began. "'I didn't mean you. I meant me.' "'What?' "'Oh, shut up,' said Rincewind wearily. "'I don't suppose there's anything to eat around here.' "'The giant stones were black and menacing "'against the dying green light of sunset. "'The inner circle was full of druids "'scurrying around by the light of several bonfires "'and tuning up all the necessary peripherals of a stone computer, "'like ram skulls on poles topped with mistletoe, "'banners embroidered with twisted snakes, and so on. "'Behind the circles of firelight,' a large number of plains people had gathered. Druidic festivals were always popular, especially when things went wrong. Rinswind stared at them. What's going on? Oh, well, said Twoflower enthusiastically, apparently there's this ceremony dating back for thousands of years to celebrate the, um, rebirth of the moon, or possibly the sun. No, I'm pretty certain it's the moon. Apparently it's very solemn and beautiful and invested with a quiet dignity. Rinswind shivered. He always began to worry when Twoflower started to talk like that. At least he hadn't said picturesque or quaint yet. Rinswind had never found a satisfactory translation for those words, but the nearest he'd been able to come was trouble. I wish the luggage was here, said the tourist regretfully. I could use my picture box. It sounds very quaint and picturesque. The crowd stirred expectantly. Apparently, things were about to start. Look, said Rincewind urgently, druids are priests. You must remember that. Don't do anything to upset them. But don't offer to buy the stones. But I don't start talking about quaint native folk ways. I thought, really, don't try to sell them insurance. That always upsets them. But they're priests, wailed Twoflower. Rincewind paused. ''Yes,'' he said. ''That's the whole point, isn't it?'' At the far side of the outer circle, some sort of procession was forming up. ''But priests are good, kind men,'' said Two Flower. ''At home they go around with begging bowls. It's their only possession,'' he added. ''Ah,'' said Rincewind, ''not certain he understood. ''This would be for putting the blood in, right?'' ''Blood?'' ''Yes, from sacrifices?'' "'Rincewind thought about the priests he had known at home. "'He was, of course, anxious not to make an enemy of any god, "'and had attended any number of temple functions, "'and on the whole he thought that the most accurate definition "'of any priest in the Circle C region "'was someone who spent quite a lot of time gory to the armpits.' "'Twoflower looked horrified. "'Oh, no,' he said. "'Where I come from, priests are holy men "'who have dedicated themselves to lives of poverty, good works, "'and the study of the nature of God.' Rincewind considered this novel proposition. No sacrifices, he said. Absolutely not. Rincewind gave up. Well, he said, they don't sound very holy to me. There was a loud blarting noise from a band of bronze trumpets. Rincewind looked around. A line of druids marched slowly past. Their long sickles hung with sprays of mistletoe. Various junior druids and apprentices followed them, playing a variety of percussion instruments that were traditionally supposed to drive away evil spirits, and quite probably succeeded. Torchlight made excitingly dramatic patterns on the stones, which stood ominously against the green-lit sky. Hubwards, the shimmering curtains of the Aurora Coriolis began to wink and glitter among the stars as a million ice crystals danced in the disc's magical field. Bellophon explained it all to me, whispered Twoflower. We're going to see a time-honoured ceremony that celebrates the oneness of man with the universe. That was what he said. Rincewind looked sourly at the procession. As the druids spread out around a great flat stone that dominated the centre of the circle, he couldn't help noticing the attractive, if rather pale young lady in their midst. She wore a long white robe, a gold torque around her neck, "'and an expression of vague apprehension. "'Is she a druidess?' said Twoflower. "'I don't think so,' said Rincewind slowly. "'The druids began to chant. "'It was, Rincewind felt, a particularly nasty and rather dull chant, "'which sounded very much as if it was going to build up to an abrupt crescendo. "'The sight of the young woman lying down on the big stone "'didn't do anything to derail his train of thought. "'I want to stay!' said Twoflower. I think ceremonies like this hark back to a primitive simplicity which, yes, yes, said Rincewind but they're going to sacrifice her if you must know. Twoflower looked at him in astonishment. What? Kill her? Yes. Why? Don't ask me to make the crops grow or the moon rise or something or maybe they're just keen on killing people. That's religion for you. He became aware of a low humming sound, not so much heard as felt. It seemed to be coming from the stone next to them. Little points of light flickered under its surface, like mica specks. Twoflower was opening and shutting his mouth. Can't they just use flowers and berries and things, he said? Sort of symbolic? Nope. Has anyone ever tried? Rinswind sighed. "'Look,' he said, "'no self-respecting high priest "'is going to go through all the business with the trumpets "'and the processions and the banners and everything "'and then shove his knife into a daffodil and a couple of plums. "'You've got to face it. "'All this stuff about golden boughs and the cycles of nature and stuff "'just boils down to sex and violence, usually at the same time.' "'To his amazement, Two Flower's lip was trembling. Twoflower Flower didn't just look at the world "'through rose-tinted spectacles, Rincewind knew.' He looked at it through a rose-tinted brain, too, and heard it through rose-tinted ears. The chant was rising inexorably to a crescendo. The head druid was testing the edge of his sickle, and all eyes were turned to the finger of stone on the snowy hills beyond the circle, where the moon was due to make a guest appearance. It's no use you... But Rincewind was talking to himself. However... The chilly landscape outside the circle was not entirely devoid of life. For one thing, a party of wizards was even now drawing near, alerted by Trumon. But a small and solitary figure was also watching from the cover of a handy fallen stone. One of the disc's greatest legends watched the events in the stone circle with considerable interest. He saw the druid's circle and chant, saw the chief druid raise the sickle, heard the voice. I say... Excuse me, can I have a word? <phone rings> Rincewind looked around desperately for a way of escape. There wasn't one. Twoflower was standing by the altar stone with one finger in the air and an attitude of polite determination. Rincewind remembered one day when Twoflower had thought a passing drover was beating his cattle too hard, and the case he had made for decency towards animals had left Rincewind severely trampled and lightly gored. The druids were looking at Twoflower with the kind of expression normally reserved for mad sheep, or the sudden appearance of a rain of frogs. Rincewind couldn't quite hear what Twoflower was saying, but a few phrases like ethnic folkways and nuts and flowers floated across the hushed circle. Then, fingers like a bunch of cheese straws clamped over the wizard's mouth and an extremely sharp cutting edge pinked his Adam's apple, and a damp voice right by his ear said, Not a shound. Or you is a dead man. Rincewind's eyes swivelled in their sockets as if trying to find a way out. If you don't want me to say anything, how will you know I understand what you just said? He hissed. Shut up and tell me what the other idiot is doing. No, but look, if I've got to shut up, how can I The knife at his throat became a hot streak of pain and Rincewind decided to give logic a miss. His name's Twoflower. He isn't from these parts. Doesn't look like it. Friend of yours. We've got this sort of hate-hate relationship, yes. Rinswind couldn't see his captor, but by the feel of it he had a body made of coat hangers. He also smelt strongly of peppermints. He has got guts, so I'll give him that. "'Do exactly what I say, and it is just possible "'he won't end up with them wrapped around a stone.' "'No. Uh, "'They're not very ecumenical around here, you see.' "'It was at that moment that the moon, "'in due obedience to the laws of persuasion, rose. "'Although in deference to the laws of computing, "'it wasn't anywhere near where the stones said it should be. "'But what was there, peeking through the ragged clouds?' was a glaring red star. It hung exactly over the circle's holiest stone, glittering away like the sparkle in the eye socket of death. It was sullen and awful, and Rincewind couldn't help noticing just a little bit bigger than it was last night. A cry of horror went up from the assembled priests. The crowd on the surrounding banks pressed forward. This looked quite promising. Rincewind felt a knife handle slip into his hand, and the squelchy voice behind him said, You ever done this sort of thing before? What sort of thing? Rushed into a temple, killed the priests, stolen the gold, and rescued the girl. No, not in so many words. You do it like this. Two inches from Rincewind's left ear, a voice broke into a sound like a baboon with its foot trapped in an echo canyon, and a small but wiry shape rushed past him. By the light of the torches, he saw that it was a very old man, the skinny variety that generally gets called spry, with a totally bald head, a beard almost down to his knees, and a pair of matchstick legs on which varicose veins had traced the street map of quite a large city. Despite the snow, he wore nothing more than a studded leather hold-all and a pair of boots that could have easily accommodated a second pair of feet. The two druids closest to him exchanged glasses and hefted their sickles. There was a brief blur, and they collapsed into tight balls of agony, making rattling noises. In the excitement that followed, Rincewind sidled along towards the altar stone, holding his knife gingerly so as not to attract any unwelcome comment. In fact, no one was paying a great deal of attention to him. The druids that hadn't fled the circle, generally the younger and more muscular ones, had congregated around the old man in order to discuss the whole subject of sacrilege as it pertained to stone circles. But judging by the cackling and the sounds of gristle, he was carrying the debate. Twoflower was watching the fight with interest. Rinswind grabbed him by the shoulder. ''Let's go,'' he said. ''Shouldn't we help?'' I'm sure we'd only get in the way, said Rincewind hurriedly. You know what it's like to have people looking over your shoulder when you're busy. At least we must rescue the young lady, said Twoflower firmly. All right, but get a move on. Twoflower took the knife and hurried up to the altar stone. After several inept slashes, he managed to cut the ropes that bound the girl, who sat up and burst into tears. It's all right, he began. It bloody well isn't. "'She snapped, glaring at him through two red-rimmed eyes. "'Why do people always go and spoil things?' "'She blew her nose resentfully on the edge of her robe. Twoflower looked up at Rincewind in embarrassment. "'Um, I don't think you quite understand,' he said. "'I mean, we just saved you from an absolutely certain death.' "'It's not easy round here,' she said. "'I mean, keeping yourself?' "'She blushed and twisted the hem of her robe wretchedly. "'I mean, staying.' Not letting yourself be, not losing your qualifications. Qualifications? said Twoflower, earning the Rincewind Cup for the slowest person on the uptake in the entire multiverse. The girl's eyes narrowed. I could have been up there with the moon goddess by now, drinking mead out of a silver bowl, she said petulantly. Eight years of staying home on Saturday nights, right down the drain. She looked up at Rincewind and scowled. Then he sensed something. Perhaps it was a barely heard footstep behind him. Perhaps it was a movement reflected in her eyes. But he ducked. Something whistled through the air where his neck had been and glanced off Two Flower's bald head. Rincewind spun round to see the arched druid readying his sickle for another swing and in the absence of any hope of running away lashed out desperately with a foot. It caught the druid squarely on the kneecap. As the man screamed and dropped his weapon, there was a nasty little fleshy sound, and he fell forward. Behind him, the little man with the long beard pulled his sword from the body, wiped it with a handful of snow, and said, My lumbago is giving me jip. You can carry the treasure. Treasure? said Rincewind weakly. All the necklaces and stuff, all the gold collars, they've got lots of them. That's priests for you, said the old man wetly. Nothing but talk, talk, talk. Who's the girl? She won't let us rescue her, said Rincewind. The girl looked at the old man defiantly through her smudged eye shadow. Bugger that, he said, and with one movement picked her up, staggered a little, screamed at his arthritis and fell over. After a moment he said from his prone position, Don't just stand there, you daft bitch. Help me up. Much to Rincewind's amazement, and almost certainly to hers as well, she did so. Rincewind, meanwhile, was trying to rouse Twoflower. There was a graze across his temple which didn't look too deep, but the little man was unconscious with a faintly worried smile plastered across his face. His breathing was shallow and strange. And he felt light, not simply underweight, but weightless. The wizard might as well have been holding a shadow.' "'Rincewind remembered that it was said that druids used strange and terrible poisons. "'Of course, it was often said, usually by the same people, "'that crooks always had close-set eyes, "'lightning never struck twice in the same place, "'and if the gods had wanted men to fly, they'd have given them an airline ticket. "'But something about Two Flowers' lightness frightened Rincewind, "'frightened him horribly. "'He looked up at the girl. "'She had the old man slung over one shoulder "'and gave Rincewind an apologetic half-smile.' From somewhere around the small of her back, a voice said, Got everything? Let's get out of here before they come back. Rincewind tucked two flower under one arm and jogged along after them. They seemed the only thing to do. The old man had a large white horse tethered to a withered tree in a snow-filled gully some way from the circles. It was sleek, "'Glossy, and the general effect of a superb battle-charger "'was only very slightly spoiled by the hemorrhoid ring tied to the saddle. "'Okay, put me down. "'There's a bottle of some liniment stuff in the saddle bag, if you won't mind.' "'Rincewind propped two flowers as nicely as possible against the tree, "'and by moonlight, and he realised by the faint red light of the menacing new star, "'took the first real look at his rescuer. "'The man had only one eye.' The other was covered by a black patch. His thin body was a network of scars, and currently twanging white-hot with tendonitis. His teeth had obviously decided to quit long ago. "'Who are you?' "'Bethan,' said the girl, rubbing a handful of nasty-smelling green ointment into the old man's back. She wore the air of one who, if asked to consider what sort of events might occur after being rescued from virgin sacrifice by a hero with a white charger, would probably not have mentioned liniment.' but who, now liniment was apparently what did happen to you after all, was determined to be good at it. I meant him, said Rincewind. One star-bright eye looked up at him. cohen my name, boy. Bethan's hand stopped moving. Cohen, she said. Cohen the barbarian? The very shame." Hang on, hang on, said Rincewind. Cohen's a great big chap, neck like a bull, got chest muscles like a sack of footballs. I mean, he's the disc's greatest warrior, a legend in his own lifetime. I remember my granddad telling me he saw him. My granddad telling me he my uh, my granddad. He faltered under the gimlet gaze. Oh, he said. Oh, of course. Sorry. Yes said Cohen, and sighed. That's right, boy. I'm a lifetime in my own legend. Gosh, said Rinswind. How old are you exactly? eighty seven. But you were the greatest, said Bethan. Bards still sing songs about you. Cohen shrugged and gave a little yelp of pain. I never get any royalties, he said. He looked moodily at the snow. That's the saga of my life. Eighty years in the business and what have I got to show for it? Backache, piles, bad digestion and a hundred different recipes for soup. Soup? I hate soup. Bethan's forehead wrinkled. Soup? Soup, explained Rincewind. Yeah, soup, said Cohen miserably. It's me teeth, you see. No one takes you seriously when you've got no teeth. "'They say, sit down by the fire, granddad, and have some shoo!' "'Cohen looked sharply at Rincewind. "'That's a nasty cough you have there, boy!' "'Rincewind looked away, unable to look Bethan in the face. "'Then his heart sank. Twoflower Flower was still leaning against the tree, "'peacefully unconscious and looking as reproachful "'as was possible in the circumstances. "'Cohen appeared to remember him too.' He got unsteadily to his feet and shuffled over to the tourist. He thumbed both eyes open, examined the greys, felt the pulse. "'Age gone,' he said. "'Dead?' said Rincewind. In the debating chamber of his mind, a dozen emotions got to their feet and started shouting. Relief was in full spate when shock cut in on a point of order and then bewilderment, terror and loss "'started a fight which was ended only when shame slunk in from next door "'to see what all the row was about. "'No,' said Coen thoughtfully. "'Not exactly. Just gone.' "'Gone where?' "'I don't know,' said Cohen, "'But I think I know someone who might have a map.' "'Far out on the snowfield, half a dozen pinpoints of red light.' glowed in the shadows. "'He's not far away,' said the leading wizard, peering into the small crystal sphere. There was a general mutter from the ranks behind him, which roughly meant that however far away Rincewind was, he couldn't be further than a nice hot bath, a good meal, and a warm bed. Then the wizard who was tramping along in the rear stopped and said, "'Listen!' They listened. There were the subtle sounds of winter beginning to close its grip on the land, the creak of rocks, the muted scuffling of small creatures in their tunnels under the blanket of snow. In a distant forest, a wolf howled, felt embarrassed when no one joined in, and stopped. There was the silver sleeting sound of moonlight. There was also the wheezing noise of half a dozen wizards trying to breathe quietly. I can't hear a thing, one began. Shh! All right, all right. Then they all heard it. A tiny distant crunching like something moving very quickly over the snow crust. "'Wolves?' said a wizard. They all thought about hundreds of lean, hungry bodies leaping through the night. "'No!' said the leader. "'It's too regular. "'Perhaps it's a messenger?' It was louder now, a crisp rhythm like someone eating celery very fast. "'I'll send up a flare,' said the leader." He picked up a handful of snow, rolled it into a ball, threw it up into the air, and ignited it with a stream of octorine fire from his fingertips. There was a brief, fierce blue glare. There was silence. Then another wizard said, "'You daft bugger, I can't see a thing now!' That was the last thing they heard before something fast, hard and noisy cannoned into them out of the darkness and vanished into the night." When they dug one another out of the snow, all they could find was a tight, pressed trail of little footprints, hundreds of little footprints all very close together, and heading across the snow as straight as a searchlight. A necromancer, said Rincewind. The old woman across the fire shrugged and pulled a pack of greasy cards from some unseen pocket. Despite the deep frost outside, the atmosphere inside the yurt was like a blacksmith's armpit, and the wizard was already sweating heavily. Horse dung made a good fuel, but the horse people had a lot to learn about air conditioning, starting with what it meant. "Better leaned sideways." "What's necromance?" she whispered. "Necromancy, talking to the dead," he explained. "Oh," she said, vaguely disappointed. They had dined on horse meat, horse cheese, horse black pudding, horse d'oeuvres, and a thin beer that Rincewind didn't want to speculate about. Cohen, who'd had horse soup, explained that the horse tribes of the Hubland steppes were born in the saddle, which Rincewind considered was a gynaecological impossibility. And they were particularly adept at natural magic, since life on the open steppe makes you realise how neatly the sky fits the land all around the edges, and this naturally inspires the mind to deep thoughts like... Why? When? And why don't we try beef for a change? The chieftain's grandmother nodded at Rincewind and spread the cards in front of her. Rincewind, as it has already been noted, was the worst wizard on the disc. No other spells would stay in his mind once the spell had lodged in there, in much the same way that fish don't hang around in a pike pool. But he still had his pride, and wizards don't like to see women perform even simple magic. "'Unseen University had never admitted women, "'muttering something about problems with the plumbing. "'But the real reason was an unspoken dread "'that if women were allowed to mess around with magic, "'they would probably be embarrassingly good at it. "'Anyway, I don't believe in Karok cards,' he muttered. "'All that stuff about it being the distilled wisdom of the universe "'is a load of rubbish.' "'The first card, smoke yellowed and age crinkled, "'was, it should have been, the star.' but instead of the familiar round disc with crude little rays, it had become a tiny red dot. The old woman muttered and scratched at the card with a fingernail, then looked sharply at Rincewind. "'Nothing to do with me,' he said. She turned up the importance of washing the hands, the eight of octograms, the dome of the sky, the pool of night, the four of elephants, the ace of turtles, "'and Rincewind had been expecting it. "'Death. "'And something was wrong with death, too. "'It should have been a fairly realistic drawing of death on his white horse, "'and indeed he was still there. "'But the sky was red-lit, "'and coming over a distant hill was a tiny figure, "'barely visible by the light of the horse fat lamps. "'Rincewind didn't have to identify it "'because behind it was a box on hundreds of little legs. "'The luggage would follow its owner anywhere.' "'Rincewind looked across the tent to Twoflower, "'a pale shape on a pile of horse hides. "'He's really dead,' he said. "'Cohen translated for the old woman who shook her head. "'She reached down to a small wooden chest beside her "'and rummaged around in a collection of bags and bottles "'until she found a tiny green bottle "'which she tipped into Rincewind's beer. "'He looked at it suspiciously. "'She says it's a sort of medicine,' said Cohen.' I should drink it if I were you. These people get a bit upset if you don't accept hospitality. It's not going to blow my head off, said Rincewind. She says it's essential you drink it. Well, if you're sure it's OK, it can't make the beer taste any worse. He took a swig, aware of all eyes on him. Mm, he said. Actually, it's not at all burr. Something picked him up and threw him into the air, except that in another sense he was still sitting by the fire. He could see himself there, a dwindling figure in the circle of firelight that was rapidly getting smaller. The toy figures around it were looking intently at his body, except for the old woman. She was looking right up at him and grinning. The Circle C's senior wizards were not grinning at all. They were becoming aware that they were confronted with something entirely new and fearsome. A young man on the make. Actually, none of them were quite sure how old Truman really was, but his sparse hair was still black, and his skin had a waxy look to it that could be taken in a poor light to be the bloom of youth. "'The six surviving heads of the Eight Orders sat at the long, shiny, and new table "'in what had been Golda Weatherwax's study, "'and each one wondered precisely what it was about Truman that made them want to kick him. "'It wasn't that he was ambitious and cruel. "'Cruel men were stupid, they all knew how to use cruel men, "'and they certainly knew how to bend other men's ambitions. "'You didn't stay in eighth-level majors for long, "'unless you were adept at a kind of mental judo.' It wasn't that he was bloodthirsty, power-hungry, or especially wicked. These things were not necessarily drawbacks in a wizard. The wizards were on the whole no more wicked than, say, the committee of the average rotary club, and each had risen to preeminence in his chosen profession not so much by skill at magic, but by never neglecting to capitalise on the weakness of opponents. It wasn't that he was particularly wise. Every wizard considered himself a fairly hot property, wise-wise. It went with the job. It wasn't even that he had charisma. They all knew charisma when they encountered it, and Truman had all the charisma of a duck egg. That was it, in fact. He wasn't good or evil or cruel or extreme in any way but one, which was that he had elevated greyness to the status of a fine art and cultivated a mind that was as bleak and pitiless and logical as the slopes of hell. And what was so strange was that each of the wizards who had in the course of their work encountered many a fire-spitting, bat-winged, tiger-taloned entity in the privacy of a magical octogram, had never before had quite the same uncomfortable feeling as they had when ten minutes later Trumon strode into the room. "'Sorry I'm late, gentlemen,' he lied, rubbing his hands briskly. "'So many things to do, so much to organise, I'm sure you know how it is.' The wizards looked sidelong at one another as Trumon sat down at the head of the table and shuffled busily through some papers. "'What happened to old Golder's chair, the one with the lion arms and the chicken feet?' said Jiglad Wirt. It had gone, along with most of the other familiar furniture, and in its place were a number of low leather chairs that appeared to be incredibly comfortable until you'd sat in them for five minutes. "'That, oh, I had it burnt.' "'said Trumon, not looking up. "'Burnt? "'But it was a priceless magical artifact, "'a genuine... "'Just a piece of junk, I'm afraid,' "'said Trumon, treating him to a fleeting smile. "'I'm sure real wizards don't really need that sort of thing. "'Now, if I may draw your attention to the business of the day.' "'What's this paper?' "'said Jiglad Wirt, of the Hoodwinkers.' "'waving the document that had been left in front of him "'and waving it all the more forcefully "'because his own chair, back in its cluttered and comfortable tower, "'was of anything more ornate than Golders had been. "'It's an agenda, Jiglad,' said Truman patiently. "'And what does a gender do?' "'It's just a list of the things we've got to discuss. "'It's very simple. "'I'm sorry if you feel that we've never needed one before.' ''I think perhaps you have needed one, you just haven't used one,'' said Truman, his voice resonant with reasonableness. Wirt hesitated. ''Well, all right,'' he said sullenly, looking around the table for support. ''But what's this here where it says,'' he peered closely at the writing, ''Successor to Greyhound Spold. It's going to be old Rune Letvard, isn't it? He's been waiting for years.'' ''Yes, but is he sound?'' said Truman. ''What?'' ''I'm sure we all realise the importance of proper leadership,'' said Truman. ''Now Vardy's, well, he's worthy, of course, in his way. But it's not our business,'' said one of the other wizards. ''No, but it could be,'' said Truman. There was silence. "'Interfere with the affairs of another order?' said Wirt. "'Of course not,' said Truman. "'I merely suggest that we could offer advice, but let us discuss this later.' "'The wizards had never heard of the words, power-base. "'Otherwise Truman would never have been able to get away with all this. "'But the plain fact was that helping others to achieve power, "'even to strengthen your own hand— was quite alien to them. As far as they were concerned, every wizard stood alone. Never mind about hostile paranormal entities, an ambitious wizard had quite enough to do fighting his enemies in his own order. I think we should now consider the matter of Rincewind, said Truman. And the star, said Wirt. People are noticing, you know. Yes, they say we should be doing something. Said Lumwell Panther of the Order of Midnight, what I should like to know, oh, that's easy, said Wirt. They say we should read the octavo. That's what they always say. Crop's bad, read the octavo, cow's ill, read the octavo. The spells will make everything all right. There could be something in that said Trumon "'My, um, uh, late predecessor made quite a study of the octavo.' "'We all have,' said Panther sharply. "'But what's the use? "'The eight spells have to work together. "'I agree, if all else fails, maybe we should risk it, "'but the eight have to be set together or not at all, "'and one of them is inside this Rincewind's head.' ''And we cannot find him,'' said Truman. ''That is the case, isn't it? I'm sure we've all tried. Privately.'' The wizards looked at one another, embarrassed. Eventually Wirt said, ''Yes, all right. Cards on the table. I can't seem to locate him.'' ''I've tried scrying,'' said another. ''Nothing.'' ''I've sent familiars,'' said a third. "'The others sat up. "'If confessing failure was the order of the day, "'then they were damn well going to make it clear "'that they had failed heroically. "'Is that all? "'I've sent demons. "'I've looked into the Mirror of Oversight. "'Last night I sought him out in the Runes of Mahor. "'I'd like to make it clear "'that I tried both the Runes and the Mirror "'and the entrails of a Manicreech.' "'I've spoken to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. "'Any good?' "'No. "'Well, I've questioned the very bones of the country, yea, and the deep stones and the mountains thereof.' "'There was a sudden chilly silence. "'Everyone looked at the wizard who had spoken. "'It was Ganmac Treehallet, of the venerable seers, "'who shifted uneasily in his seat. "'Yes, with bells on, I expect,' said someone. I never said they answered, did I? Truman looked along the table. I've sent someone to find him, he said. Wirt snorted. That didn't work out so well the last two times, did it? That was because we relied on magic. But it is obvious that Rincewind is somehow hidden from magic. But he can't hide his footprints. You've set a tracker? in a manner of speaking. A hero? Wirt managed to pack a lot of meaning into the one word. In such a tone of voice, in another universe, would a southerner say, Damn Yankee? The wizards looked at Trumon, open-mouthed. Yes, he said calmly. On whose authority? demanded Wirt. Trumon turned his grey eyes on him. Mine. I needed no other. It's it's, "'It's it's highly irregular. Since when have wizards needed to hire heroes to do their work for him?' "'Ever since wizards found their magic wouldn't work,' said Truman. "'A temporary setback, nothing more.' Trumon shrugged. "'Maybe,' he said. "'But we haven't the time to find out. "'Prove me wrong.' Find rincewind by scrying or talking to birds, but as for me, I know I'm meant to be wise, and wise men do what the times demand. It is a well-known fact that warriors and wizards do not get along, because one side considers the other side to be a collection of bloodthirsty idiots who can't walk and think at the same time, while the other side is naturally suspicious of a body of men who mumble a lot and wear long dresses. "'Oh,' say the wizards, "'if we're going to be like that, then, "'what about all those studded collars and oiled muscles "'down at the Young Men's Pagan Association?' "'To which the heroes reply, "'That's a pretty good allegation coming from a bunch of wimpsos "'who won't go near a woman on account, can you believe it, "'of their mystical power being sort of drained out.' "'Right,' say the wizards, "'that just about does it. "'You and your leather-posing pouches,' ''Oh, yeah,'' say the heroes, ''why don't you?'' and so on. This sort of thing has been going on for centuries and caused a number of major battles which have left large tracts of land uninhabitable because of magic harmonics. In fact, the hero, even at this moment galloping towards the vortex planes, didn't get involved in this kind of argument because they didn't take it seriously, but mainly because this particular hero was a heroine, a red-headed one. Now, there is a tendency at a point like this to look over one's shoulder at the cover artist and start going on at length about leather, thigh boots and naked blades. Words like full, round and even pert creep into the narrative until the writer has to go and have a cold shower and a lie down. Which is all rather silly, because any woman setting out to make a living by the sword isn't about to go around looking like something off the cover of the more advanced kind of lingerie catalogue for the specialised buyer. Oh well, all right. The point that must be made is that although Herena, the henna-haired harridan, would look quite stunning after a good bath, a heavy-duty manicure, and the pick of the leather axe in Wu Hun Ling's Oriental Exotica and Martial Aids on Heroes Street, she was currently quite sensibly dressed in light chainmail, soft boots, and a short sword. All right, maybe the boots were leather, but not black. "'Riding with her were a number of swarthy men "'that will certainly be killed before too long anyway, "'so a description is probably not essential. "'There was absolutely nothing pert about any of them. "'Look, they can wear leather if you like. "'Harenna wasn't too happy about them, "'but they were all that was available for hire in Moorpork. "'Many of the citizens were moving out and heading for the hills "'out of fear of the new star. "'But Harenna was heading for the hills for a different reason. "'Just turnwise and rimwards of the plains.' were the bare Trollbone Mountains. Herena, who had for many years availed herself of the uniquely equal opportunities available to any woman who could make a sword sing, was trusting to her instincts. This Rinswind, as Truman had described him, was a rat, and rats-like cover. Anyway, the mountains were a long way from Truman, and for all that he was currently her employer. Herena was very happy about that. There was something about his manner that made her fists itch. Rincewind knew he ought to be panicking, but that was difficult because although he wasn't aware of it, emotions like panic and terror and anger are all to do with stuff sloshing around in glands, and all Rincewind's glands were still in his body. It was difficult to be certain where his real body was, but when he looked down he could see a fine blue line trailing from what for the sake of sanity he would still call his ankle into the blackness around him, and it seemed reasonable to assume that his body was on the other end. "'It was not a particularly good body, he'd be the first to admit, "'but one or two bits of it had sentimental value, "'and it dawned on him that if the little blue line snapped, "'he'd have to spend the rest of his life, his existence, "'hanging around Ouija boards, pretending to be people's dead aunties, "'and all the other things lost souls do to pass the time. "'The sheer horror of this so appalled him, "'he hardly felt his feet touch the ground. "'Some ground, anyway. "'He decided that it almost certainly wasn't THE ground,' which as far as he could remember wasn't black and didn't swirl in such a disconcerting way. He took a look around. Sheer, sharp mountains speared up around him into a frosty sky hung with cruel stars, stars which appeared on no celestial chart in the multiverse, but right therein, amongst them was a malevolent red disc. Rincewind shivered and looked away. The land ahead of him sloped down sharply and a dry wind whispered across the frost-cracked rocks. It really did whisper. As grey eddies caught at his robe and tugged at his hair, Rincewind thought he could hear voices, faint and far off, saying things like, Are you sure those were mushrooms in the stew? I feel a bit... And, There's a lovely view if you lean over this... And, Don't fuss, it's only a scratch," And, Watch where you're pointing that bow. You nearly... And so on. "'He stumbled down the slope with his fingers in his ears "'until he saw a sight seen by very few living men. "'The ground dipped sharply until it became a vast funnel, "'fully a mile across, "'into which the whispering wind of the souls of the dead "'blew with a vast echoing susuration, "'as though the disc itself was breathing. "'But a narrow spur of rock arched out and over the hole, "'ending in an outcrop perhaps a hundred feet across.' There was a garden up there, with orchards and flower beds, and a quite small black cottage. A little path led up to it. Rincewind looked behind him. The shiny blue line was still there. So was the luggage. It squatted on the path, watching him. Rincewind had never got on with the luggage. It had always given him the impression that it thoroughly disapproved of him. But just for once, it wasn't glaring at him. It had a rather pathetic look like a dog that's just come home after a pleasant roll in the cowpats to find that the family has moved to the next continent. All right, said Rincewind, come on. It extended its legs and followed him up the path. Somehow, Rincewind had expected the garden on the outcrop to be full of dead flowers, but it was in fact well kept and had obviously been planted by someone with an eye for colour, always provided the colour was deep purple, night black or shroud white. Huge lilies perfumed the air. There was a sundial with a gnomon in the middle of a freshly scythed lawn. With the luggage trailing behind him, Rincewind crept along a path of marble chippings until he was at the rear of the cottage and pushed open a door. Four horses looked at him over the top of their nosebags. They were warm and alive, and some of the best-kept beasts Rincewind had ever seen. A big white one had a stall all to itself, and a silver and black harness hung over the door. The other three were tethered in front of a hay rack on the opposite wall, as if visitors had just dropped by. They regarded Rincewind with vague animal curiosity. The luggage bumped into his ankle. He spun around and hissed, "'Push off, you!' The luggage backed away. It looked abashed. Rincewind tiptoed to the far door and cautiously pushed it open. It gave onto a stone-flagged passageway, which in turn opened onto a wide entrance hall. "'He crept forward with his back pressed tightly against a wall. "'Behind him the luggage rose up on tiptoes "'and skittered along nervously. "'The hall itself... "'Well, it wasn't the fact that it was considerably bigger "'than the whole cottage had appeared from the outside "'that worried Rincewind. "'The way things were these days, "'he'd have laughed sarcastically "'if anyone had said you couldn't get a court into a pint pot. "'And it wasn't the decor, which was early crypt "'and ran heavily to black drapes. "'It was the clock.' It was very big and occupied a space between two curving wooden staircases covered with carvings of things that normal men only see after a heavy session on something illegal. It had a very long pendulum, and the pendulum swung with a slow tick-tock that set his teeth on edge because it was the kind of deliberate, annoying ticking that wanted to make it abundantly clear that every tick and every tock was stripping another second off your life. It was the kind of sound that suggested very pointedly that in some hypothetical hourglass somewhere another few grains of sand had dropped out from under you. Needless to say, the weight on the pendulum was knife-edged and razor-sharp. Something tapped him in the small of the back. He turned angrily. Look, you son of a suitcase, I told you it wasn't the luggage. It was a young woman, silver-haired, silver-eyed, rather taken aback. End of CD 3